as you're getting there to Job 42, I want to acknowledge something, a truth. And it's this. Sometimes we don't always get the ending we want. Sometimes we don't always get the ending we want. You know what I mean? You open yourselves up for a story. It's a book. It's a movie. It's someone telling you a story. You're listening. You open yourselves up for a story. You get invested in what is happening. You've been there, right? You get invested. You get carried along by the suspense of the narrative. You start to eagerly anticipate. Maybe you're that kind of person that even tries to predict the resolution of the ending. You're hooked. And then you turn the final page the final scene comes on the screen, the final part is told to you, and much to your surprise and shock, the conclusion is not at all what you expected. Worse yet, sometimes, it's not the ending you wanted, right? It's unbelievable. Oh, come on, that's just too neat and tidy. Give me a break. It's unconvincing. Ah, there's no way that could happen. That's ridiculous. It's frustrating. The conclusion, what just happened there, that doesn't explain or justify everything that came before. Was it, were they paying attention to all the stuff that happened before? Coming to the end of the book of Job today, I'm sharing all this with you because we need to prepare ourselves. The last chapter in this story tends to evoke similar reactions in people. Um, I don't know if you're one of them, but as I've been preaching through Job, it's been quite interesting to me. I haven't had anyone, I think, in my time here say this to me, but I have actually had for this book people come up and say, I hate this book. I don't like Job. And of course, that always makes you feel good. Well, we're going to be doing it next week, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and, but when I push, there's a, a, several reasons, but one of the main reasons that comes up again and again for many people, it may not be you, why they don't like Job is because of the end. They don't like what is about to happen here. But before we get to that, if you haven't been with us all this summer or maybe haven't been with us in a while, even if you have, let me briefly recap this story so far. Found in the wisdom rather than the historical section of the biblical library, that's important, the book of Job is probably more of a parable than an actual happening, real events. But none of that changes the weight of its impact or the fullness of its truth for us. We have this story of a righteous and blameless man named Job who suffers the worst day of his life. In a single moment, Job loses all of his wealth and possessions, his children, and his health. Job's external sufferings are massive, but they are soon matched by pain of another sort. More abstract, but no less real. Job, you see, is not a perfect man, but he's done nothing to deserve this. And we know this for sure. We know this for certain, absolute certainty, thanks to a brief window we're given at the start of the story into a conversation between God and the Satan. Job's spouse, though, and his friends, they don't know what we know. And in yet another crushing blow, they choose not to believe Job. They choose not to believe in Job. And so Job, in his misery, loses more. He becomes isolated from his community. He loses the support of his wife and of his friends. He's blamed for this sudden reversal of fortune. Again and again, Job is berated to either curse God and die or to make a false confession, to admit he's done wrong when he hasn't. 
in order to be restored to his former glory. Through all of this, unmerited suffering and acute pain, unbearable silence, angry tears, honest questions, forced answers, and betraying rebuke, perhaps the greatest thing Job begins to lose is his confidence in everything he knows and believes about God. Job is barely holding on when the Lord finally shows up and speaks. Drew covered this last week. God shows up and speaks, and through this grand cosmic tour of the universe, Job gains a wider perspective, one that surprisingly doesn't increase the distance he's feeling from God, but actually closes it. In this vast, complex, and detailed universe that you and I, we've barely scratched the surface of discovering and understanding, the Lord reveals to Job he has his careful eye and his loving hand on all of it, including Job. How does Job respond? Where does all this leave him? Let's find out. Job chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shushite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted him and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring." The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. But he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemiha, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. This is the word of the Lord. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. The Bible's most agonizing, challenging, and thought-provoking book finishes with the proverbial fairy tale ending. Job's life was bad. Job never let go of God. Job's life is good again. And then Job lived happily ever after. Really? That's it. The end. 
New house, new kids, new wealth. Job becomes twice as rich as he was before. He's reconciled to his extended family and community. Brothers and sisters, his wife maybe, everyone he knew before comes back and offers him consolation for all he's been through. Now? Now they come back? Where were they before? They come back after Job is restored. Oh, I see. How convenient. How quick they are to return when there is wealth to be feasted upon. I'm sorry if I'm raining on your parade here, but this ending stinks. Job's lifespan is doubled and he dies a happy and content man. Okay, after being dealt a knockout blow, struggling with the pain, we were there, right? Enduring the betrayal of those closest to him, facing a major crisis of faith, Job's story concludes with Job hitting the jackpot? When and how did Job become a Disney movie? Again, you may not be where I am. I'm going to get you there. How do we reconcile the end of Job with the rest of the book? Let me push further. If you've been with us, everything that has happened to Job up to this point, this is very important. We've underscored this many times. Everything that has happened to Job up to this point has been a negation of what's called retribution theology, what we call today the prosperity gospel. That's been a constant theme, that what's been happening has been a rebuke of the idea that God always rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. But now here at the end, doesn't it seem like this theology seems to be upheld? It appears Job is rewarded for his faithfulness, or at least reimbursed for his losses. And if this was going to be how it turned out all along, why did we not just skip to the happy ending? Why bother with the struggle of it? If in the end, the conclusion seems to be that it all really doesn't matter. Because you get double. But you'll get more. What are we ultimately to make of this ending? Now, for some of us, some of us are like, I love this ending. But if you've ever been where Job's been, you don't like this ending because you don't know this ending, right? It is not how life works, right? All of a sudden, whoop! What do we make of this ending? I've laid out some questions and we're not going to ignore those questions today. We're going to address them one by one as we step back and consider what we've learned as we reflect upon the point of the book of Job as a whole. And I want to say to you as I'm about to dive into this, that the insights that I'm going to share with you this morning, while they are particular to Job, I, and this was intentional in kind of planning this, this series this summer, they are also representative of similar themes we see through all the wisdom literature of the Bible. So these, these things that I'm going to highlight for you, they're not just true of Job, but they're true of all of these readings that we've had in the wisdom section of the Bible. So, three takeaways that we have. Here's the first. The first takeaway from the story of Job and wisdom literature as a whole is this, and it's a good one and an important one. It's, it's okay to ask why. It's okay to ask why. It's okay to question. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to wrestle. It's okay to cry out to God. In the rawness of his lament, through the honesty of his questions and the vulnerability of his doubts, Job both gives expression to, right, and permission for our own grief, our own uncertainty, our own wrestling with God, acknowledging rather than hiding from our pain, admitting rather than denying our fears, even being angry with, crying out, calling out God are not inappropriate or unacceptable attitudes and behaviors. These are valid 
oftentimes needed responses when we hurt or suffer. Even though Job's wife and his friends persist in rebuking Job for speaking up and speaking out, for venting his frustrations and seeking resolution for his troubles, the Lord does not affirm their judgment of Job. We hear that in the end. It's quite the opposite, right? There is no divine rebuke of Job because my friends' articulations of complaint, of accusation, even reservation towards God are received not as a distancing from the Lord, but actually as a pressing into God. They are expressions of relationship to and with the Lord. Job repents, you'll say. Job repents here, though. Pay careful attention. Job's repentance is his confession of a lack of understanding. It's not an apology for how he felt, how he channeled his hurt towards the Lord. This is important, this first takeaway. Some of you need to hear this again and again. There is room for us. God is big enough to handle and to bear our sorrows, our anger, our questions, our doubts, even when, and most especially when, they are all directed at him. And this affirmation, as I said, is not just reflected in Job's story, but we can see it even in the Psalms of David. Remember? Grappling with God, shaking one's fist, even shouting at the Lord are as much a posture of prayer as bowing one's head or raising one's hands. Because in and through them, one is still laying hold of and not letting go of God. The first takeaway is it's okay to ask why. It's okay to question, to doubt, to wrestle, to call out to God. But the second half of that first takeaway is it's okay to ask why, but we need to be wary of jumping to conclusions, of thinking we know all the answers. It's okay to ask why, but we need to be wary of jumping to conclusions, of thinking we know all the answers. Remember, Job's friends try to silence him. They try to stop his processing of his emotions, his wrestling with faith, his challenging of his circumstances. They presume, right, to correct Job and tell him he's wrong to act the way he does. More than this, remember, those who keep Job company also believe they know the answer to his predicament both why Job suffers and how it can be fixed. We're not going to rehash their arguments today, the fullness of their arguments today. We're simply going to remember this. They were wrong. Job was not suffering because of something he had done. Job's pain was not a means of God trying to teach Job something, to correct him. They were mistaken in what they had claimed about God, the conclusions they jumped to. More importantly, more to the point, by implication, they were wrong in what they said about God. And I don't know if you caught this, but the Lord, in the end, explicitly comes out and declares this. You have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. The Lord declares this not once, but twice. Collectively and individually, they were just plain and completely off the mark. It's okay to ask why, but we need to be careful of jumping to conclusions, to thinking we know all the answers. Where did they go wrong? Their error was in perceiving they knew enough. They could perceive enough to speak for the Lord, to defend God. However, in seeking to uphold God's justice, they lost hold of God's grace, right? 
In defending the Lord's truth, they failed to represent the truth of his love. All of them, each one of them, may have been sincere in their beliefs, but my friends, sincerity is not the same thing as accuracy. Please hear that, church. You're sincere. I'm really sincere. Good for you. Sincerity is not the same thing as accuracy. We must be careful in our asking of why. It's okay to ask why, but we have to be careful in our asking of why that we become so fixated on seeking an answer that we jump to our own conclusions, that we craft our own answers, that we stuff and try to cram God into a box. We try to fit him into the formula of our own logic. We try to make the Lord accountable to the either or of our incomplete perspective. When we become overly attached to the why, we either end up simplifying God, simplifying God, meaning we make God more like us, and remember, it's supposed to be the other way around, right? God's not created in our image, we're created in God's image. We don't make God more like us, we learn more and more how to reflect the trueness of who God is. When we become overly attached to the why, we either end up simplifying God or we end up judging God based on limited evidence. Interesting thing here. With this ending, chapter 42, we ironically find ourselves in the same place as Job's friends. Because we get to this ending and whether we like it or we don't, we're tempted to equate the end of Job as a validation of retribution theology, of a prosperity gospel, that Job got rewarded or paid back for good behavior. If you like it, many people that took you like it go, yeah, Job was faithful and so God blessed him. Other people go, I don't like this story because it looks like God blessed Job because he was faithful. We're tempted to go, I don't, li- I don't know what to make of this ending, so I'm gonna presume what it means. Right? But we ought not to jump to this conclusion that somehow this ending validates retribution theology, theology, a prosperity gospel. Because, and I don't know if you caught this, we get so focused on Job, we miss something else. We miss how Job reacts, how God reacts, excuse me, to Job's three friends. If God operated according to retribution theology or what we call the prosperity gospel. If, in other words, God operated where the good are rewarded and the wicked are punished. And remember, this is what Job's friends argue. This is how it works, right? If that's how God worked, then when God comes right out and says about Job's three friends, not once but twice, you have spoken wrong about me. You have misrepresented me. You have not done right by me. If retribution theology, the prosperity gospel, is how it is, what should happen to Job's three friends? Wham! Wicked. Punished. Done. And some of us, part of why we don't like this story is we want them to get it, right? Man, give them, give, give them what's coming to them, Lord. Man, they've been ticking me off for so many chapters. Give it to them. If that's how the world worked, that's how God worked, that's what we'd see. But do you notice, isn't it interesting? The Lord treats his friends contrary to how he argues they wor- he works. Instead of punishing the wicked, God 
demonstrates another way, an answer no one could have imagined. God demonstrates undeserved mercy on Job's friends. He gives grace in providing a way for their sin to be dealt with. You will go, will go and make sacrifice, and Job will pray for you, and I will hear his prayer. Job will pray for you. Remember that guy who you couldn't give a kind word to? He's going to pray for you, and I will hear his prayer. Affirming, so that first question of doesn't the ending somehow affirm now this, this theology that's all wrong? No, this ending right here we can see it is not affirming a theology of retribution or a prosperity gospel. That's not what the end of this story means. Something else is going on here. How do we figure out what's going on here? In order to figure that out, we've got to move on to the second takeaway, the second insight. The first is it's okay to ask why. It's okay, but we can't get so fixated on the why that we start jumping to conclusions. The second takeaway, second insight is this. The why must always lead us back to the who. The why must always lead us back to the who. We, part of the appeal of this book, even if we don't like it, part of what draws us in is we share with Job and his companions this ever-present desire. We have it. We feel it. This longing to be given an explanation. We want to know the answer to the question why. The why is what drives us, right? We want to know the reason. We want to know the justification for suffering and pain in our lives and in this world. But like Job and his friends, like them, our, our perspective is limited. Our understanding is incomplete. The best answers we can come up with only take us so far. Job comes to realize this. Job doesn't get, can't perceive the answer to the question why. He has this beautiful moment of honesty. You heard it where he says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job gets close to jumping to conclusions, right? But instead of hanging on to the why, Job hangs on to the who. What Job gets instead of the why, where he's taken, where the why takes him, is into deeper relationship with his creator, with his father, with his God. Notice, while the Lord doesn't condemn, but accepts Job's lament, doubts, and questions, God doesn't condemn it. At the same time, God doesn't allow Job's complaint, Job's uncertainty, Job's challenge to be the last word. The Lord shows up, right? There's this beautiful moment where Job also says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. The Lord shows up, the Lord speaks up, God responds, God refuses to leave Job's doubts unanswered, to leave Job where he is, to leave Job as he is. And so Job is restored. He's blessed two times over. And like I mentioned earlier, this is the end part of the ending that makes it seem perhaps to some of us that what happened before didn't really matter, therefore. Because he just gets blessed, he gets double. I mean, that's why I said that I raised the question, if that's what's going to happen, then why not just skip to the good part if this is how things were going to end up? And here's two things. First, we need to realize, and we misspeak about this ending, we need to realize Job doesn't get everything back. Job doesn't get everything back. My friends, having new children doesn't replace the ones that Job lost. Job's wounds may heal, but the scars still remain. For Job, the memories of what he had suffered surely did not fade away. And that's not just me speculating. Look at verse 11 where it tells us he still, even then, needed comforting sometimes. 
He still needed to be comforted. It didn't just go away. And my friends, you need to hear this. See this ending as it truly is. The big questions, the whys of our lives, they don't ever completely go away. The big questions, the whys of our lives don't ever completely go away. We're always looking for answers beyond our reach. To see not just the partial view, but the full view of the horizon of our lives. We do this not just in terms of our future, but we also do this in terms of our past. We continue to, to have why, whys in our lives. And the thing is, we can't just skip to the end. We can't just pass over the valleys of this life. In Job, we don't just skip to the end of the story because even though we may get beyond it, it's the pain and suffering we experience that matters. The pain and suffering matters. The ending of Job is not a negation, somehow saying that what happened before didn't matter. It matters. The pain and suffering we experience matters. It matters because it still informs and shapes who we are, who we become. Job's restoration that we get so cringe at, this blessed life he lives on the other side of things, is not because he forgot his sufferings. Job continues to live because he did not forget where he's been and what he's been through. Job will always remember his painful sores. Job will always remember his lost children. They are a part of him. What has changed for Job is his perspective, his point of view. We get so fixated on the doubling down of all that happens to Job in the end, the restoration of twice as much money, twice as much family, twice as many friends. We get so fixated on that that we miss what we really should focus on is what was taken away from Job and never given back. We miss what was taken away from Job and never given back. And that is this, what was taken away from Job and never given back is his simple faith. His rock shore confidence in thinking he knew how everything ought to work. What was taken away and never given back was the Job that we saw at the beginning, do you remember, who made preemptive sacrifices just to cover all his bases. Do you remember that guy? Job discovers that easy answers and shallow understandings of how things work in this universe before the face of God turn out to be less than the whole story. And when Job encounters God, he's not scolded, he's transformed. Job in that moment, Drew took us through it, is not provided with intellectual answers. He's not grasped by philosophical insights. No, the answer Job is given, what grabs hold of Job is the relationship itself. Job is grasped by God. The why must always lead us to the who. Job encounters, Job comes to recognize a God who is bigger, greater, and more mysterious than he envisioned. A God who openly, intimately, and willingly comes down to his level, who shows up, who speaks up, and who carries Job forward. In contrast, in contrast, on the other hand, Job's friends, to the very end, in their fixation on the reasons why, have totally missed the who. In their fixation on the reasons why, they have totally missed the who, right? For all they're speaking for God, think about this, for all they're speaking for God, Job's companions never once in the story speak to God. They are so busy theologizing about God to Job, it never occurs to them to talk to God 
to pray about Job. Defending the Lord at all costs has left them closed off from actually opening themselves up before the Lord. And the beautiful thing is the story isn't over yet. As God has showed up and spoken to Job, we see here at the end that the Lord shows up and speaks to Job's friends. It's not an easy word, it's a hard one, but it's not a word of judgment, is it? It's not the answer of judgment. God shows up and offers even to Job's friends the invitation into a relationship through a word of grace. Beloved, the final logic of the story of Job is not the logic of justice. The final logic of the story of Job is the logic of grace extended through relationship. The why must always lead us back to the who. We cannot think our way to God. Some of you This is a word for you this morning. Some of you are really, really smart people. God has given you an incredible mind. Some of you love to think, love to overthink. Hear me. You cannot think your way to God. You will never think your way to God. We can only be, we only are finally grasped by God. And I want to acknowledge this. Let's put it out there. In this life, on this side of things, most of us, don't get the ending that we see here in Job right away. And that's why I'm going to tell you, I don't think this is truth. I think this is parable. This is where fiction doesn't line up with reality. For most of us, we go through it and we do not, like Job, just suddenly have the cancer erased. The loved one can't get replaced. The wealth isn't reclaimed and doubled. Our struggles are always messier than what we find them here in Job. This is a story, people, There is rarely a magical happy ending for us to just fast forward to. However, we read Job, we come back to it, we can embrace this ending, not with revulsion or disgust, because like Job, like Job, when we reach the best of the answers we can come up with, when we reach the boundaries of what we think we know, when we reach the very limit of our perspective, what we believe we can see, when we reach the end of ourselves, the limits of how we feel about our circumstances and we just can't take it anymore, all those whys can lead us home. All those whys can lead us home, back to the one who created us, back to the who the one who takes responsibility for all of it, the one who is present, the one who shows up, the one who speaks up, the one who sustains us, the one who promises to restore, to redeem it all, including you. Including you. But make no mistake, you have to choose to go home. You have to choose to let the why lead you to the who. Don't miss this in this ending to this story. My friends, despite what looks like an otherwise happy ending, Job had to choose. Job had to choose to embrace a life with a whole new set of questions. Job had to choose to embrace a whole new outlook on life and on God. Job had to choose to embrace a whole new outlook without some of the certainties to which he had clung earlier in his life. Given his new and profound awareness of things beyond his ability to understand, did it ever occur to you 
that Job had to wrestle with the fact that who was to say he wouldn't suffer or experience pain like he had again? Right? His way of thinking how the world works has been blown open. And so now he has to choose to live knowing what he can't understand and knowing that he may suffer, he may experience pain again. Facing the question of why, once again, is not just a question of our past, something of our past. The question of why unavoidably becomes again and again the question of our present and of our future. And yet Job chooses to live. Job chooses not to hide or deny. He chooses to live before the inevitability of the wise still to come. And he chooses to live before the inevitability of the wise still to come by hanging on, going deeper, and being in relationship with the who. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Leaning on a renewed faith, Job and his wife, think about this, choose to bear children more children to bring life into this fractured but healing world full of heart-rending beauty and yet heartbreaking pain. They choose to have more children. Surrendering before the grace of God, Job chooses to love again, even when he knows now the cost of such love. It's okay to ask why. It really is. But we have to be careful in not jumping to conclusions that we know all the answers. The why has to always lead us back to the who. What is the point of this story? What is this all about? My friends, the point of the story of Job is told to us by where we find it in our Bibles. It's in the wisdom section of the Bible. The point of the story of Job is to teach us wisdom. And if you go, yeah, that's great. What does that mean? What's wisdom? Here it is. It's the first word we get when we start in this part of the biblical library, right in Proverbs, goes through Psalms, Ecclesiastes, even Song of Songs, and here we are in Job. What is wisdom? The Bible tells us at the start, all the way along, and at the finish. What is wisdom? Wisdom. The beginning and end of wisdom is knowing and trusting the Lord. The beginning and end of wisdom is knowing and trusting the Lord. And in the story of Job, we witness, you and I, the very essence of that journey, of the believer's journey of walking by faith and not by sight. We don't know what's around the corner. No matter how we try to control it, manage it, manipulate it, we don't know what's around the corner. Otherwise, if we did, it wouldn't be faith. It would be sight, right? We don't know why bad things happen to good people. You and I, we could talk for hours and come up with all kinds of great answers. They're all going to suck. We don't know why bad things happen to good people, but we do know who can bring good out of bad things. Hope out of hopelessness, victory out of defeat. In the face of darkness, surrounded by death, the very fact that we have light and life each and every day is evidence God is not finished with us, that our faith is not in vain. But even more than this, from our vantage point, and we should consider ourselves, this, this especially from our vantage point, living in a remarkably different point in salvation history than where the story of Job takes place, the witness of this light and life for us has a name and a face. 
While we don't have the capacity to comprehend the reason God allows pain and suffering to continue, often so randomly, we do now have the answer to all of our pain and our suffering. The ultimate resolution that cannot be found in the story of Job is the divine answer we are given through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be cross-eyed when we read this story. We should be cross-eyed because Job, in a way, is a pointer to the one who was yet to come, to another blameless and righteous servant, and yet one who was indeed perfect, who truly and absolutely served God, our Father, for nothing, robbed of his possessions, losing his family, betrayed by his friends, not just feeling abandoned by God, Job felt abandoned by God, but actually experiencing separation, absence from God. Jesus lived the life of Job. Jesus lived the life of our humanity to its bitter end, to death. On the one hand, in Jesus, you see, we receive the answer of a perfect and willing servant to embrace not just any suffering, but our suffering, the pain of this world. And at the same time, by faith, we profess that in Christ, we are also given the answer of the God who is so committed to us that he empties himself. He comes down to be with us, not just to carry, but to bear the weight of our pain and to resolve it, to redeem it, all of it, all of our suffering for good. Bookmark this for next week as we start back up in the story because this is really going to be the point of everything else we look at as we go back to the story. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of the story. If you don't remember anything else from now until November when we finish, remember that. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the story. And coming back to where we've been this summer, wisdom, Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the wisdom of God. What is wisdom? To know and trust God. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the wisdom of God, the full, tangible revelation of God's character on display, near enough for us to touch, close enough for us to follow. In Christ, we encounter the God who dies so that we might live with every tear wiped away. We encounter the God of resurrection who from a bloody cross and out of a sealed tomb makes the pain of our suffering but a mere passing shadow before the promise and beauty of eternal life and endless possibilities. So we sit here today, maybe some of you love this ending, maybe some of you hate it. We read the book of Job from finish, start to finish, and we come to an ending, many of us, that we can't believe, that we don't believe, but the good news I'm here to declare to you today is even though we come to an ending that we can't believe and that we don't believe, the good news is this is the ending that God gives us anyway. This is the ending God gives us anyway, despite ourselves. This is the ending God gives us despite our limited vision. This is the ending God gives us despite our lingering, lingering doubts. This is the ending God gives us even with our scoffing disbelief. Before all our resolutions, our answers to the question of why, of pain, of evil, of suffering, the message, the truth, the reality, the answer of the cross 
is who is purposefully and willfully, willingly nailed to it. And we get so used to the cross. We have them in our churches. We wear them on our necks, except for maybe Good Friday, which kind of turns things on its head. We are so just complacent in thinking about the cornerstone of our faith. What do we point to when we point to the cross? Who do we say is up there? What do we say is happening? And like I said, Good Friday tends to shake us up a bit. But otherwise, we sing about this. We point to it. We wear it. Do we really let it sink in? What we are proclaiming, what we are saying, who we are saying is up there. Because if you truly let it sink in, the wisdom of God of the cross, which Paul says is a stumbling block to most people, foolishness to the Gentiles, you come up against this. The very thing that we think is wisdom <laughs> is foolishness, and the very thing we think is foolishness is actually the wisdom of God. If you actually think and feel and, and kneel before the cross, what it will do is it will wash out a great many of your own certainties. It will wash away many of the things that otherwise you think are true about God, that you think are true about us, that you think are true about life, about sin, what you think is true about what's needed to fix this world. God is there, people. The Lord is with us. He is not silent, but our Father has not told us everything we want to know. Yet God has spoken. The word has become flesh. In Christ, all is revealed to us about God, about ourselves, about this world, his creation, that we need to know. What is good and necessary for us to understand. And if you don't know what that is, here it is. At the heart of history, our story, the cross, the gospel declares there is undeserved suffering that makes possible undeserved blessing. There is undeserved suffering that makes possible undeserved blessing. To turn Job on its head, what we profess, why we're here, why we celebrate, why we wear crosses and look to them is we believe because a righteous man suffered, unrighteous people like us can experience mercy and grace. Think about that. Our shared hope for a way out of our despair, beloved, is more than a fairy tale. If we dare to press on and turn the page, we'll realize that what we perceive as the Hollywood ending of Job actually leads us towards the true story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the thing is, this resurrection that we celebrate, resurrection isn't a one-shot deal. You know, on Easter Sunday and, and thereafter, we need to get bigger in how we understand this idea of resurrection. Resurrection isn't just a one-shot deal. Resurrection isn't just something we experience when we physically die. Resurrection, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, we can be resurrected from many smaller but no less crippling deaths. By the grace of God, we can be resurrected from many smaller but less crippling deaths. That's what we see at the end of Job. And if you still can't see it, if you're still struggling to believe how any suffering, let alone the worst suffering imaginable, can be transformed into infinite good, then, beloved, be led by the Spirit and look upon an empty tomb. Look beyond the horizon of the grave to the living presence of the crucified conqueror who goes before you 
who leads the way, who calls us to follow him, and who even carries us on his shoulders when we find ourselves lost in our pain and crippled in our suffering. Beloved, we can rise from the ashes of our grief. We can rise from the ashes of our grief. We can be lifted up when we fall under the weight of our pain. We can be filled with the Spirit to live again after unspeakable suffering. And one day, a day right now we can only imagine, a day we can only imagine but nonetheless anticipate, one day in Christ, all that has been lost will be found. One day in Christ, all that has been made wrong will be made right. And one day, a day we can only imagine and yet still anticipate, as crazy, as nuts as it sounds, one day in Christ, we will suffer no more. Amen.